Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Robert Rauschenberg. Along with the Tate Modern's Ashim Borchardt-Hume, Leah Dickerman, my guest, is the co-curator of Robert Rauschenberg Among Friends, a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's on view through September 17th. The exhibition features Rauschenberg's early photography, body prints, combines, performances, prints, and more. The exhibition catalog was published by MoMA. Amazon offers it for 34 bucks in paperback and $51 in cloth. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Leah Dickerman is a curator at MoMA. Her previous exhibitions include Inventing Abstraction, 1910-1925, and a 2005-06 data survey that Dickerman curated while working at the National Gallery of Art. On the second segment, Ken Ashton joins me to discuss his new book, Portsmouth, Collected Saturdays, which is new from daylight. But first, Leah Dickerman, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist Marisa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, this first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's Senior Curator of Exhibitions, Michael Goodson, the show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Leah Dickerman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. The last American Robert Rauschenberg retrospective was just 18 years ago, also in New York. It was the Walter Hopps and Suvin Davidson show at the Guggenheim. And there was a big exhibition of Rauschenberg's Combines at MOCA in Los Angeles and at the Met. Paul Schimmel organized that show in 2006. Why did you and MoMA want to do a third big show in such a relatively small window? I'm not sure I would call it a small window in the sense that the last retrospective was 18 years ago. So in audience terms, that's a generation of viewers ago. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to think about Rauschenberg in relationship to contemporary practice and his relevance for contemporary practice. And it almost came out of noticing how many artists of a somewhat younger generation were making explicit reference to him in his work and even in the way that you can walk into a Chelsea gallery and you see all of this art it's made out of the stuff of the world that's coming off the walls it's interdisciplinary in its approach that is performative either explicitly or by implication and that Rauschenberg was a key player in opening all of these possibilities for contemporary practice so how then can you tell the story of an artist Robert Rauschenberg in a first posthumous retrospective in a way that helps our viewers and our audiences understand him as a key player in the prehistory of art of the present. And I, and I got to say, reading through the catalog, the present kept popping up in my mind over and over again on page after page. Yeah, I, I think, I think you, that there's a real sense of exploring the terrain, taking apart a certain more traditional notion of art, and so as curators, we were asking ourselves, well, what were the key things then to bring forward for our audience? You know, how do you make that kind of interdisciplinarity in his practice present and feel real and vibrant and his engagement with art and technology, which is so present and, you know, the way he explored that emerging cusp of a digital age? Or how could we talk about issues of sexuality and make it 
you know, more straightforward and think about the way that both relationships and social circles help structure forms of practice. And you know, those were our our first, you know, ways of thinking our way into what a contemporary Rauschenberg exhibition would be. Given that a generation has passed since that Guggenheim show, how is your checklist or approach or both different from the way the Guggenheim presented Rauschenberg? Well, one thing we did was we made performative work even more present. And we did that in a variety of ways, but with the idea of trying to make it clear that Rauschenberg is a key figure in marrying the world of fine arts to the world of performing arts. And then that alliance actually creates new forms of new modes of practice that have shaped art of the current day. So we have video, moving image, sound interventions into the galleries on a regular beat. And in highlighting that, we asked, we invited artist and filmmaker Charlie Atlas to work with us. And that was really a great experience too. And that's also coming out of the fact that here in MoMA, we organized the retrospective as what we've been calling an open monograph. So that when other people come into Rauschenberg's creative life, creative life, we would bring them into the show as well. And that collaborative impulse that runs through his work was part of what made us want to invite someone to collaborate with us in doing the show. And of course, you know, bringing an artist in is just such a wonderful experience. And it really changes, I think, the way that that work can be seen. And Charlie was the perfect collaborator because he had worked with the Merce Cunningham Company for so many years as a lighting designer and a filmmaker, and he'd gotten to know Rauschenberg in that context. And I think his admiration for Rauschenberg shaped his approach to his own practice. So that that was part of how we've really pushed the performance part of Rauschenberg's career. So he's not just a set and decor guy, but you see that it's a consistent engagement with the performing arts. That's in the catalog, too. At least a third of the catalog essays discuss or are about performance. The, the one other thing, it seemed to me, without counting one for one, there were, there were you know, almost 500 objects in the Guggenheim show, so it's almost not, and, and, and a little more than half that in, in the Moment Tate show, is that there is a greater emphasis on or more photographs. Photographs come in in the beginning in our first room, in our Black Mountain room. We have a wall of photographs that of early photographs by Rauschenberg, plus three great blueprints that he made with fellow artists and his, and his wife, Susan Weil. And we also, in, in the New York installation, brought in key photographers for him, Hazel Larson, who was the first photography instructor at Black Mountain, and Siskin, who Larson invited to come down and teach in the summer of 1952, and who was a big influence on Rauschenberg. So all of these photographs are at the beginning of the show, and photography and printmaking are things that stay, without, stay with him throughout his practice. You can see it in the way that he brings images in, the way that he keeps thinking about how can you make a mark on paper, how can you make a print, and you know, even a work like the famous automobile tire print. is It's a print, you know. It's an incredible print made on 20 sheets of typewriter paper, and he asks his friend, the composer John Cage, to drive his Model A Ford straight down the line of paper, and then laughingly said, well, he was both printer and press. So, One of the things that I think artists especially have taken from Rauschenberg in recent decades, you know, is the idea of medium fluidity, which is a bad phrase that I immediately regret having used. <laughs> but, but, the, but, but this idea that an artwork doesn't have to be a painting, doesn't have to be a sculpture, doesn't have to be a painting and sculpture, that it can be both and neither simultaneously. Is there a way to emphasize that idea in a show other than just by showing the work? Is, is there a way to point to that as, and do you point to that as, as key to the practice? I think we did. Yeah, it was something that we wanted there to be a very fluid mix of media throughout the galleries. Rauschenberg, you know, he, here's another moment in which Black Mountain College sets an example because he goes down there in 1948 and there's dance and there's craft. He takes classes with Annie Albers. There's collage practice in his classes with Joseph Albers, who takes music, all of these things at once. And he never turns his back on that idea of all of these things at once, you know. 
he's very broad-minded in things that can come into art and very egalitarian in these principles as well. You know, he really doesn't want to give greater weight or greater privilege to putting paint on canvas with a brush to fragments and baseballs and pair of socks and putting them into a canvas as well. And so that impulse then ultimately follows through in his thinking about music and found sound or ordinary movement and dance. And he's a, he's a, you know, silo busting guy. Yeah. And for that reason, I didn't want to kind of do a historical progression through the artist and the work as we, as we often do on the show. And so in, informed by kind of the recent French passion for dictionaries of, of artists' work, such as the Matisse one coming out either later this year or early next year, I thought we'd, we'd kind of go through Rauschenberg in a different way. And that is there are a number of objects or motifs or whatever that, that recur in Rauschenberg's work from the beginning, from, you know, 49, 50, 51, all the way through, in many cases, to the end of his life. And I thought of doing this as kind of a dictionary or audio concordance. I'll, I'll raise an object and then maybe some of the works in the show, usually in the show, that have that object in it. And maybe we can discuss how Rauschenberg used that object, why you think that thing recurs in the work, and most especially, maybe what you learned in, in just getting to have your hands on so many pieces over the last couple of years and in working on the show. Sounds like an oral exam. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> and and the first one goes goes back to Black Mountain College, as as you note, so much of this does. And like Rauschenberg's and it's Rauschenberg's use of newspapers, such as in the untitled Black Painting with Asheville Citizen, a newspaper which still exists as the Asheville Citizen Times. That works from nineteen fifty two, kind of many of those nineteen fifty two paintings, black paintings, include newspapers. The red paintings the next year include newspapers, as does Charlene from 1954, collection from 54-55, and so on. Why do you think Rauschenberg seized on newspapers? There's, of course, a long modernist tradition of using newspaper and collage. You can think about Pablo Picasso or George Bach's uh, collages or Kurt Schwitter's collages. But the way that Rauschenberg uses newspaper is very different if you're thinking about a painting like Asheville Citizen where instead of creating references to a cafe still life, it's almost applied as a broad belly band across the picture's frame. In fact, it, the, that picture has two canvases that abut each other, and the newspaper seems to join them together. And it's just the stuff. It's just the stuff of everyday life there. It's, it's a newspaper. It's not a newspaper presented as something else. And it's still legible if you read it. So you see listing, ad listings, listings for housing. It's still the segregated South. You can see that there's listings for colored apartments and other white apartments. So in that minutia of the newspaper, you already get a sense of the, the stuff of everyday life. And that's something that comes back again and again in Rauschenberg's work, you know, that he wants to create work in which the real world can come in. And I think a newspaper is a signal sign of that ambition. Does he use newspapers that way throughout his career, or does the way in which he uses them change? No, well, he uses them in, in, in different moments. So when you're thinking about something like monogram, he's cutting and pasting newspaper images onto the support panel of monogram, which is turned horizontally to support the taxidermied goat that's surrounded by a tire. And if you look at the images in that work, the images that he's clipped are images of masculinity, of bankers and athletes and policemen, you know, almost these archetypes of the way to be a man in the world. And these are images that I think Rauschenberg contests to some degree in his own life and in his artwork. He's interested in them, and at the same time, perhaps they don't quite quite fit. And so they are, again, certain symbolic forms from the world around us, certain media images that are prevalent come into, come into the work. And then in 1970, he does a work called Currents, which is a series of prints in which he clipped headlines taken from newspapers that were all published 
on that day, world events, you know, as presented and as translated through media headlines and, you know, last of titles and graphic fonts. So he's very interested in how newspapers register and translate the events of the world, current worldwide information, was the way that he talked about it. Next up, chairs. Maybe the earliest work in the show is a 1949 photograph Rauschenberg made at Black Mountain of two chairs in the lower left-hand corner and sunlight raking, intense sunlight raking across the wall behind them. There's also Pilgrim in 1960 in which a chair is kind of sort of hanging off of the lower right-hand side of a canvas. And then there are pieces like Booster, uh, Booster and Seven Studies from 1967 or Soundings from 1968. Soundings is the piece at the Ludwig and Cologne with uh, uh, transfer images of chairs on on uh, a translucent, light-illuminated object. We'll have images of all this on manpodcast.com, thank goodness. What, what, what about chairs do you think interested Rauschenberg, and why do they recur? The first photograph that you took, uh, you're talking about, is one that he took while he was at Black Mountain. And it echoes very much some of Hazel Larson's own photographs. I'm thinking of one that she took called Quiet House, in which light is coming in and raking across the room, creating an ambient sense of space. And Rauschenberg is clearly playing with some of these effects in that, in that first photo. I'm not sure that when he's working in that moment, it's the same thing as what he's doing later on when he puts a chair into a painting, as he does with Pilgrim. And that, that work, I think, is interesting because if you look at his earlier red paintings, for instance, the surface is getting heavier, thicker with the accumulated stuff of the world with newspapers and with pieces of fabric and even a light bulb or a piece of mirror. It's almost as if he's asking himself the question, if you can put you know, a piece of paper into a picture, well, why can't you put a goat or why can't you put a chair? And in doing, trying to put these heavy, physically awkward objects in a picture, something that's seemingly impossible to do so, it's not just a question of making everything bigger, they think there's a way of tipping the balance so that the support for the work of art is no longer able to contain the thing that he's put in and the space tips over and out. Um, and there's no longer a strong division between the space of art and space of the world. And the chair, I think, can become an index of that. It's a, a way of suggesting that the viewer might sit down in the painting, might actually become part of the painting, and it's the same time that it suggests that, you know, the, the canvas support behind the chair can no longer contain contain the work itself. It's a breaking down of barriers we see again. So I think that work is very interesting. And I think you can feel the entrance and performance behind it. One of the things that he did was a few years before he designed Pilgrim was he worked with Merce Hunting Cunningham on a Cunningham dance piece called Antic Meat in which Cunningham danced with a chair on his back and the set and costumes were designed by Rauschenberg. And in that case, the chair served as a way, a kind of prop, but one that actually put demands on the dancer's body. You know, you dance differently if you have a chair on your back and you're capable of doing certain things if you have a chair on your back and you're limited in doing certain things if you have a chair in your box. So how can an object place demands on a human actor? And I think that's a question that he's exploring in that in that work. In the event, the idea of a chair being on a dancer's back sounds bizarre. It, it literally was. It was strapped and tied to the dancer's back. In the case of um, the photograph in the show, it's it's Merce Cunningham's back. And, and that says, I think, something very central about Rauschenberg's approach to objects, is which, which is that it's not just an artist who's controlling his materials, but he's encountering, Rauschenberg thinks of himself as encountering materials, and that he has to be able to hear what capacities they have. They have an ability to place demands on him as an artist. And it's not unlike his approach to art in general, you know, thinking of art as an encounter either with materials or with another actor or another artist or another work of art. Next up, birds, either either in whole as, as an actual bird included in a work or their feathers, such as in a 1952 collage mounted on shirtboard 
or painted representations of, of birds or painted suggestions of birds, a specific one of which we'll come to in a moment. Obviously, entire PhD dissertations and probably multi-volume books have been written on Rauschenberg and birds. Did you have any particular thoughts about uh, why birds interested Rauschenberg and how he used them as, as you came to work with the objects? I don't think I would answer it in birds as a category. I would say that in some of the scatoli, the little boxes that he makes in Italy and North Africa, that have a lot of fragments and relics in them. You can see some bird skeletons and bird feathers appear there. That's 1952. Yeah. And there's some sense, I think, there that he's creating an evocation of the past, but it's, you know, he talks about a false history, that it's hinting at a history that you don't know or you can't quite figure out. And so he creates these little mini monuments to a suggestive or elusive past. But I'm not sure that the feathers there are doing the same thing that the taxidermied eagle is doing in Canyon. Of course, in Canyon, the story of the eagle is a terrific one, and it was his friend, the artist Shari Dinas, who spotted the eagle outside, ready to go to the trash. It had belonged to someone who lived in the Carnegie Hall apartments where she lived, and he was a Teddy Roosevelt rough rider. When she saw that, she called Rauschenberg and asked if he wanted to use it. And he said people were always offering him some kind of junk or another, but this was something he was interested in. And he put a good amount of trying. He put an eagle into the picture. So that's another example of you know, trying to put something so incommodious, something so physically awkward into a picture that it changes the spatial relationship between the support, which can no longer you know, hold that in, and the space of the world. And of course, in that case, the eagle refers to the classical Greek myth of Ganymede, the story of Zeus taking the guise of an eagle and swooping down to pick up a beautiful young boy and bring him back to Olympus. That's one of many references throughout Rauschenberg's work to his sexuality, to desire. I mean, it's full of boy jokes all over the place. You know, there's puns and jokes. I always feel like I'm getting them, you know, a beat too late, but there you are. I mean, there is that line of thought that the flightless birds in the early combines are references to, are, are intentional Rauschenbergian references to his own sexuality and his own consideration of it. And I never know, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, but what I do think is important is that sexuality is a huge part of identity and much of the story of Rauschenberg is a story of being a, a young gay artist whose coming of age is emerging as an artist in New York before Stonewall, and how that, that shapes his thinking and social patterns within the art world. I mean, there's a way of thinking about that that I think is important, which is that he, when he was 26, he walked into the Betty Parsons Gallery, paintings tucked under his arm, and he was offered a solo show. And that gave him a certain kind of admission to the group that hung out at the Cedar Bar Tavern as a junior member of this abstract expressionist world. And yet it's clear from things that he said, even though that he hung out and he studied these older artists and admired the way that he, they handled paint, that he never quite fit. And he felt that he never quite fit. He talks about a story of the painter Franz Klein saying that, well, you can't paint a paint pink painting. And Rauschenberg said, well, then of course I did. And I think that that fact that he didn't feel a fit with, you know, the machismo of an older generation of abstract expressionist paintings is probably part of the reason that he develops his alliances with musicians and dancers. And that alliance, that marriage between the fine arts and performing arts is actually one of the things that is revolutionary in his practice, which transforms the terrain of contemporary art. There's another work that I'm tempted to read the presence of bird or uh, uh, wings into, and that is the 1961 first time painting at the Berlin National Gallery. I think I see black painted wings in it. I don't know if you see them, but is that a work that interests you? I think it's a terrific work, although I am trouble, I'm having trouble seeing it as a bird form. But Rauschenberg made that work in a performance event. So this is another example of how he's tying together the world of, world of fine arts and the world of performance. He and the artist Nikki Sanfal and Jean Tang Lee and Jasper Johns and the musician David Tudor 
had a performance that was an homage to Tudor in the American embassy in Paris. And what Rauschenberg did was he took a canvas and put it on the easel. He turned the back of the canvas to the audience. He attached contact mics to the canvas. And then he painted on stage in front of the audience. They couldn't see what was going on, but because of the contact mics, there was a constant little sound of as he touched the brush to the canvas. So the work became this... Know, orchestration of, of the act of painting, a sound event. And when he embedded an alarm cock in the painting, and when the alarm went off, he stopped painting. And that too is also one of those eternal artistic questions for a painter. You know, how do you know when something's done? Well, Rauschenberg solved the problem by putting an alarm clock in the painting. And then when the alarm clock went off and he stopped his painting, he packed the painting up and he took it away. And no one saw, ever saw what was painted on the face of the canvas until the next day when he showed it in a gallery and curious visitors could come see it. So it was all about the act of making, the time duration of painting, and not at all about what it looked like. There's a picture of that painted performance, if you will, in the catalog and I think in the show. We'll have that, that picture on manpodcast.com. It's worth noting that the alarm clock you referenced faces Rauschenberg, but the clock is in the middle, you know, the canvas runs through the middle of the clock, so the audience could see the back of the clock, back of the alarm clock. Next item, tires and tread. We've already mentioned a couple of those works, uh, the automobile tire print that Rauschenberg did with John Cage, driver, if you will, in 1953, and Monogram, where uh, you have a goat in a tire from 55 to 59. But there's also, uh, there are also tires in the Map Room 2 performance in 1965, in Revolver 2 from 1967, in an untitled work, Venetian from 1973. Is there something about that form or, or the actual object that you think holds Rauschenberg's interest? Well, it's true that he clearly likes tires, but I don't know if it's the form. But what I would say is that what you can see in a work, that iconic automobile tire print work, is that he's really thinking about the question of what are the ways that you can make a mark and saying that there's no reason that a brushstroke of paint on canvas is preferable or better than any other mode of mark making. And, you know, once you say that it doesn't have to be paint on canvas, that opens the possibility to making a blueprint or making a tire print, or making a whole, you know, coming up with a whole range of other ways of marking things on canvas. So the tire print maybe serves, serves as an index of that whole line of questioning. And then I think you can see that he's very interested in the surface of this urban world um, that he finds himself in in New York. I think the tire is a marker of that as well. My guest is Leah Dickerman. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash for more. Support comes from the Getty. Retro girl group La Luth performs at the Getty Center on Saturday, June 24th at 6 p.m. as part of the 2017 Off the 405 Outdoor Summer Concert Series. Enjoy the snappy surf and indie rock sounds of this all-female band as they navigate through themes of loneliness, infatuation, and obsession. Bringing some of today's most exciting bands to the stage, the Getty presents an evening of live music and stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. And now back to my conversation with Leah Dickerman. Maybe nothing recurs in more works through more decades than fabric and textiles. And I don't just mean canvas as painting support. I mean, everything from uh, Pakistani cloth, I think, and Samarkand stitches from 1988 
to using fabric in in the red paintings in 1953 in works like Yoik's and Minutia, the famous combine of the following year. You know, artists have used and painted fabrics, for example, for centuries. Is Rauschenberg's interest as simple as art history did it, and he was a bit of an art history nerd, or or are there other reasons that that, that you think he stayed interested in them for so long? I think it's interesting. It's another one of those questions that can take us back to Black Mountain when he was down there. He studied. They took at least some classes with Andy Albers and studied weaving to some degree. So he has this already this early interest in textiles and some early experience with it. And I think if you think about that, the fact that he had some craft training, that he had spent time in Black Mountain, where there was an integrated curriculum, both fine arts and craft training and performing arts, the textile becomes a bit of a, you know, agent of revolution because in the New York art world at that moment, the preeminent style was abstract expressionism where painting was dominant and as these big virtuoso juicy strokes of paint on canvas and idea of something crafty coming in to that language was really was really radical and Rauschenberg starts doing that pretty quickly already you know there's scraps of fabric in some of his scatoli and then you see quite a bit of fabric again in his red paintings in 1953 so that admitting of something of a different tradition, that admitting of the stuff of the world, that admitting something that is not paint on canvas that doesn't respect the purity of that model happens pretty early. And, you know, textiles are probably the, the first thing he does that with. And then in the Jammer's works, they're often nothing but textiles. They're nothing but textiles. He went to India. He stayed with the Sarabi family, which is a very wealthy, cultured family who had arranged to have Rauschenberg come, collaborate with the artisans who were at a school, an ashram, um, in which paper making and fabric making was taught. The school had been founded by Gandhi, and Gandhi had a lot of investment in the idea of fabric making because he thought that, you know, creating homespun, hand-woven fabrics in India was a way of beating colonialist economy. So Rauschenberg's studying in one of these Gandhi-founded places or working with the artisans there, and he's going to the Kadi shops where you can buy Indian fabrics, and he was so taken with them, and I think he was taken too with the luxury, the beautiful saturated color of these Indian fabrics and often metallic edges and the way that these things would you know, shine brightly against what was often a scenario of dire material poverty. And in his recollections of the trip, he talks about how seeing those textiles and seeing those fabrics had reminded him that he was always a little bit ambivalent about beauty and art, that there's something about being part of a New York intellectual art world had made him hesitant to just pursue beauty. And these Indian fabrics allowed him to explore beauty and color in a way that he hadn't previously allowed himself. Something I knew that was in a lot of the work over 35, almost 40 years, but maybe hadn't realized quite how much until I was reading the catalog, is parachutes. It's it's in the fairly early or, or pretty darn early combine, Untitled Man with White Shoes from 54. It's an autobiography from, from 68. It's in Bible Bike Borealis from 91. There's also umbrella covers, which are like little mini parachutes, too. Yeah. Yeah, and even in in the 1961 painting we were talking about a moment ago, first time painting, the one at the National Gallery in Berlin, above the painted things that sure look to me like bird wings is a plastic cap of some kind that that also looks like a parachute as seen from above. So they're all over the place. Why? <laughs> what do they mean? Do they mean anything? <laughs> I mean, again, I think it's part of this, you know, found materials, materials of the everyday world, ready-made color. And then when he is doing, develops his interest in performance, so he's working, you know, with both Paul Taylor and then with Merce Cunningham already in the second half of the 1950s. But when he gets to the 1960s, he, performance really takes a forefront and he begins choreographing some of his own performances. And the first of them is a work called Pelican. And Pelican 
was going to take place in a skating rink that they rented. And he decided to use that venue as inspiration and have his dancers move on skates. And he attached parachutes to their back. So there's something about the combination of, you know, the forward, almost frictionless mobility of roller skates and the the wing-like pull of the parachute on the dancers' backs that he'd created. Um, it's, the images of that performance are incredibly beautiful. And you can see that the dance is conceived as a kind of meditation on the roles that dancers play for each other, you know, taking turns supporting each other, taking turns serving as sort of forces of propelling each other. So it's a kind of ballet of the roles that you play relationships. The, I, I love that neither of us, you're the expert, not me, has a clear idea of what these things necessarily always mean in the work, even when they recur through the decades. Because it seems to me that some of what's both magical and wonderful about Rauschenberg's work is that you know, he uses the same words over and over again, but as in the English language, they can often mean different things when used in different ways, but they still refer back to the other meanings of the word in ways that get us thinking. One of the things that I can't figure out if, if it means something, but that Rauschenberg uses a lot is Coca-Cola bottles, Coca-Cola signage, Coca-Cola crates. One way to think of that is almost a reference to his native South, where where Coca-Cola, however ubiquitous it is elsewhere, is a, a an even more particular thing. Did you find yourself thinking about Coca-Cola at all during this show? No. I mean, I think it's actually hard to read these objects in Rauschenberg's work, you know, as symbols in a, a sort of iconographic way. I, I don't think that's the way he's he's thinking about it. So it does, in my head, make it a little tricky to sort of categorize them around the thing rather than around the way he's approaching it in a strategic way or a tactical way. Coke for him is, you know, maybe an emblem of the stuff of everyday life. You know, that that's something you like to drink, something that was around. It's ordinary. He, at one point he says, you know, he feels sorry for those people who say they don't like, you know, Coca-Cola bottles and soap dishes because, you know, that's the stuff that's around them all the time, you know. So I think it's a way of saying he wants a painting that's open to the stuff of the world, the very ordinary things that can serve as an index of these moments of the present um, and that they can come into the picture just like, like they can come into the spaces we live in and the spaces we move in. And I think, I think the bottle serves as an index of that more than it is exactly about the the Coke, <laughs> you know, the, the, the soda pop part of it. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about how he often uses a, as a Coke bottle, but there's one work that's a very beautiful work in which there's a little shelf and there's two Coke bottles in it. And they're really sitting there. Like somebody just put the Coke bottle in the picture in the same way that you would put a bottle on a shelf and that he's creating these ways of what he would call putting the room into the picture you know, that, that a painting could hold an object just like an ordinary piece of furniture could hold an object and you could stick your hand in and put it there. That might be untitled with image of Merce Cunningham from 63. If it, if it is, we'll have an image of that on the website. If it's not, we'll find it and have <laughs> the right work. I want to I wanna work toward a close with, I guess, two versions of a similar question. One is the most Famous body of of, of of works in in the in the Rauschenberg oeuvre are the combines. They get probably more attention than than almost everything else put together. Almost is there a grouping or series of of work that in doing the show kind of rose higher in your estimation as in terms of its import or or relevance or engagement with the outside world. I think that, you know, along with the Combine's radicality, for me, one of the things that was most fun to explore was his earliest work from the 1950s and how you can see hints of that logic being tested in a very systematic way in the work that he's doing in his studio in Fulton Street, for example, where 
he's really testing properties of mark making like he does with automobile tire print or where he does his elemental paintings, which were paintings that were each made out of a different material. And he seems to be testing the properties of that material so that there's one painting that's gold painting and another painting that was a lead painting and another painting that was a dirt painting. And each of these materials in the way that he presents them are just framed up simply and allowed almost to be, and they're shown as equivalent to each other. So gold isn't worth more than dirt, and dirt isn't worth more than gold. And that idea of equivalence that comes out of an activity like that is something I think that allows him to make the combines. You know, Combines are premised on the idea that one material, that all material are equally permissible for making art. And so you can see the logic of that developing in his earliest work. And I think that's an incredibly exciting moment. And then I hadn't known his performances from the 1960s in the same way when I had begun this project. And they seemed to me to be truly, you know, radical body, radical body of work. And it too has this very combine-like attitude to the world in the sense that any type of movement is equally available for performance, you know, not just the highly trained virtuoso movements of ballet and modern dance, but also, you know, basic movements of walking and kneeling and squatting and taking steps. All of these are also the vocabulary of dance and ordinary objects are part of these performances as well. And the kinds of demands that they put on dancers' bodies, the way they can limit their movement. Um, so the tires you mentioned in Map Room 2 allow dancers to, you know, to struggle to move in them, to try to walk in them, to roll, you know, put to, to crawl through them or to try to roll on them, but they can't be danced in any traditional way. So uh, he seems to be asking the question is what does a tire let you do? You mentioned the elemental paintings. One of them may reference back to a story you told earlier about Franz Klein and Rauschenberg making a pink painting. One of them is titled Pink Clay Painting to Pete, and, and Pete was Paul Taylor. And so here's Rauschenberg, and, and, and the paint, you know, the thing, the painting isn't isn't super pink anymore. The, the, the clay has, you know, done what clay does. It has dried out and probably changed colors and become a little browner. But that one has always seemed, it's at the Menil, um, that one has always seemed to me a great example of Rauschenberg making a reference to the tradition, to a tradition of there being lots of gay painters throughout art history. It's a, and, and, and paint is colored mud. Paint is colored mud. It's a painting about touch. I mean, it's about what does clay let you do? You can see finger pushing, if you will, in the surface of the thing. And again and again, push, 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 push. And then, you know, in that same series is the gold painting, which Jasper Johns helped to make. And he um, reported that they used to leave the sides of the gold paintings open so that winds could pick up and make the gold leaf that they used flutter. And this very casual approach to a precious material. Um, again, not more precious than any other material, but this exploration of the properties of what does gold let you do. And, and probably a reference to the decorative there, too. Rauschenberg, throughout his career, includes references, often sly and quite often very funny, to the um, stereotype of gay men's interest in the decorative. My favorite example of that is not in the show. It's the spread painting at the Baltimore Museum of Art which takes dead aim at a number of stereotypes and and really skewers each one. And and finally, to wrap up, when we think of the, the greatest and most famous and indeed really the most studied Rauschenbergs, we think of works like Tire Print and Minutiae, Erase to Kooning Drawing, many, 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 many of the works we've, we've talked about here. In the process of doing this show and being around the works, were there any Rauschenbergs that, emerged for you as works deserving of a lot more attention than they've gotten, either because they're really great or just because they're understudied? Well, one body of work that I was talking about that I think has been, you know, under shown and under thought about is the performance work. But another body that's in the show and we tried to highlight was his relationship with technology. So a lot of artists have an antipathy towards technology and seeing it as some force of anti-subjectivity or 
at least not uh, foregrounding the artist's touch and creative ego. But Rauschenberg never saw it that way. He saw technology as part of the adventure of contemporary life and went so far as to found a group called the Experiments in Art and Technology, the Experiment in Art and Technology, which was a matchmaking service that aimed at putting artists and engineers together to explore the cutting edge frontier of contemporary possibility. And he, much of the administration of this organization took place in his studio in Lafayette Street in the kitchen. And it was a kind of macro collaboration. And we have some works. EAT, of course, EAT, in case people are missing it. <laughs> from um, that were done under the auspices of EAT in the show that are, you know, just extraordinary works. One of them is Mud Muse, which is work that he made with engineers from the Teledyne Corporation and which is a vat with sound-activated pneumatic air pumps. And the inside of the vat, you put 8,000 pounds of mud made from bentonite um, when you receive it from the Museum of Modern Art in Stockholm, the Moderna Musette. You don't actually get the mud. That has to be mixed on site. But it's all an exploration of this contemporary, in his moment, contemporary possibility of sound automation. Um, in that moment in time, the idea that sound could make something move was terribly new, was really the cutting edge of our own moment in time. And this is a machine that makes that visible. And the sound pumps make the mud burble and splurt. It looks extraordinarily primordial, like the La Brea tar pits, but also futuristic at the same time. And it's And it's funny, but it's also about what the future might bring. And, you know, works like this, I think, were not taken seriously in much of our art historical uh, evaluation of Rauschenberg's career. But he's somebody who really wanted to understand and was, the, you know, the, the frontier of the future and was somebody who I think had a sense of the digital age and its emergent form. In fact, he's interesting because there's a there's a I think he thinks digitally before he actually has digital capacity. You can see something like that in his silkscreen paintings where he creates an inventory for himself, 150 screens that are drawn from contemporary media images, and he mixes them and combines them, mixes them in a different way. So he's using, you know, a relatively low-tech technique, but this possibility of using appropriating images and combining them and recombining them as a very digital way of thinking puts them in motion and then later on much later in his career when there's real possibilities for using iris inkjet printers and apple computers he's among the first artists to try to use them fantastic leah dickerman thanks so much for speaking with me thank you tyler The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who was identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. Welcome back. My next guest is artist Ken Ashton, whose new book is Portsmouth, Collected Saturdays. It's out from daylight. The book features Ashton's documentation of the deindustrialization and emptying out of Portsmouth, Ohio, a small town on the Ohio River at the southern end of Appalachia. Amazon offers it for $30. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Ashton's work is in the collection of institutions such as the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago and the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Ken Ashton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. 
Tyler, thanks a lot for having me. Portsmouth, Ohio, where Southern hospitality begins, is 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 what Portsmouth says about itself. What is, where is Portsmouth, Ohio, and, and why is that kind of slogan sort of weirdly true? I don't know about the slogan, really, <laughs> but I go to Portsmouth for a bike ride, so it's it's 104 miles straight south from Columbus, Ohio, and it's where the uh, Scioto River meets the Ohio, the Ohio River. That's the geographical location. It's, it's hilly there, but it's also a floodplain right behind town, so geographically it's got uh, a, lot, a lot happening. It's kind of right at, right at the point where Ohio, Kentucky, and, and West Virginia come together, which might suggest something about its economic state. Exactly. Yeah, because you know it, it's it's a river town. It's upriver from Cincinnati. It's downriver from Wheeling and Pittsburgh, and it's had some industry. It's had some notoriety. It's also had lots of flooding too. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's gone through some tough times. <laughs> so as we kind of set the scene for where you made this book, how how big is Portsmouth? What what industries do or did run the place? Well, its its peak population, I think, in the 40s, 50s was 40,000, and now it's 20,000. It's had a steel mill. It's had a shoe factory. It's had a toy factory that blew up. It actually had a professional football team, which became the Detroit Lions. Yeah, <laughs> they played in the Super Bowl, they, like the first one. It's, you know, it's had a few famous people, you know, roll through there, but it's also, it's a, it's a hillbilly town too, because it's, it's like the northern edge of Appalachia, you know, Ohio, the southeast Ohio is very hilly, it's got some coal, now fracking is big, but throughout that whole Appalachian area, so that's probably most of what's going on there now. There is a small university there, Shawnee State, but really not much to think about when you, you know, when you think about Portsmouth. Most people think Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or some other Portsmouth in another state, Virginia, whatever, but... Yeah, it's not far from Huntington, West Virginia, as the Ohio River flows, which is where the the railroad met, met the Ohio. So what about Portsmouth made it a place about which you wanted to make a book? Well, I didn't know I was going to make a book at, at first, and even though I'm, I'm only there one afternoon a year... <laughs> For this bike ride. I've been doing this bike ride for for a long time, since 91 was the first time. And I, it was mainly being with my club mates on this bike ride. And then you turn around and go back the next day. So I'm not really in the frame of mind of making art. I just want to take a shower, eat dinner, and go to sleep. But I noticed the change over the years with the number of riders not showing up and the number of people not on the side of the road as you go into town. And then the weather was not really conducive for making pitches. It, was, it would almost always rain that first day. So there were times I would take pictures. I had a camera all the time, so I would, you know, walk into dinner, maybe, you know, do some stuff. But um, it wasn't until the late 90s that I noticed that this town is dead. It's really a lot missing. The buildings have been torn down. Even the church that we would stay in, the congregation got so small, they closed the church, sold it, and another church picked up the congregation. So, you know, we're thinking about where are we going to stay if the church is closed, you know? <laughs> so those are the things we were thinking about, but it slowly turned into my subject matter, which, I mean, you know my work. I'm always doing neighborhoods in urban areas. Lots of times the neighborhoods are in transition, either going down or coming up or whether it's gentrification or industry leaving or different circumstances, it's different in every town. But I, I noticed that, okay, well, one year I got a new camera, I'll take it with me and it gives, it gives me a chance to see what the camera can do. And I like what I had when I came home and this is digital, my first digital camera. I made a point the next year to bring it with me again. So it turned into a project. The work was good. It was consistent. The weather was cooperating in the later years so that, you know, we always had a nice blue sky. Sometimes it's overcast, but the lighting was good. I think that's what was missing all those years when I was not thinking about taking pictures because it was always overcast or trying to get into town before it rains so that, you know, <laughs> you know 
want to do the last 10 miles in a thunderstorm. So, but then the work just, it just seemed to like come together. So I got to the point where I just can't, you know, race down to Portsmouth, get my, you know, get the first one, get the first shower and get my dinner and go out and shoot. You know, it's, you know, I claimed it was good for recovery. You know, after doing a hundred miles, little brisk walk, kind of loosen the legs up and clear my head and take some pictures and it became a thing. So it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I realized that this is enough work. It's concise enough that I can make a book out of it. There are a couple of things in the pictures that really jump out and that are, of course, related to, to what you just described. One is the long shadows in uh, not all the pictures, but many of the pictures. Did you intend those to be a metaphor for a moment in in either the place's history or or kind of the Ohio River's post-industrial history? Uh, no. <laughs> they do read that way, though. Oh, yeah, they do. I mean, I, and I think the ones you see are near the end of the book, especially the last picture. But that's that's something I, I don't shy away from. I don't mind having my shadow in certain pictures. Yeah, you know, let me let me jump in on that because of two things. One, um, the only human presence we see in any of the pictures is is your shadow. Um, there are occasionally signs or cars parked in parking lots. I think there's there's one picture that has a police car in a parking lot. But in terms of of, 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 of humans, your shadows are it. The, the the picture with which the book ends that you're referencing is of uh, a, a narrow street or an alleyway that has a painted arrow on it, and the arrow points backwards. I, I understand what you're talking about with, you know, the long shadows, and that's that's kind of with, you know, the time of the day, but I don't, like I said, I don't mind the shadows from buildings. It, it adds to the composition. I'm more of a street aesthetic photographer, so my compositions can be a little bit more complex compared to what you see a lot of days, you know, where everything's straight center. So I have that aesthetic where I, I don't mind all the elements coming into the composition. And at the same time, I don't mind my shadow in certain pictures. Sometimes, okay, I don't want my shadow in this picture. Let me either change my point of view or, you know, lift up the camera a little bit and make sure it's just, you know, out of the way. So there's something to be said about having that composition. It, it adds to it. You know, there's, there's lots of street. Lots of empty pavement. Lots of empty pavement, and, you know, I, I like, it's like adding a line that goes through something to kind of break it up a little bit. So, yeah, those are the things that make me stop in my tracks and say, you know, okay, this is the composition I like. This reminds me of something I like to do. I don't re like to repeat myself too much, but there's certain things I'd like that, I, that draw my eye, so I'll stop and work with it. Are there any projects or books by other photographers that you were thinking about or consciously referencing in, in this group of work? After years of photographing, I have lots of, you know, people that I admire, work that I admire. But I think this is one project where it was just all me. Whatever kind of work I liked before kind of influenced something else or influenced by something else. I think everything just got filtered through and and into my vision. So, but I can tell you that I do. I you know, if uh, influence of mine was uh, Bill Christianberry. I got a, quite a few nice Robert Frank books, and a really good friend of mine, Ken Schles, has some amazing work from New York. But at the same time, it's like okay, well, I like these things for different reasons. But yeah. I was I've been doing this for a while, so I think I'm I'm at the point where everything that I like, everything that influenced me, everything that I pursued, kind of gets all filtered in and and remixed and into one vision. So, the photographer who who came to mind for me here was Stephen Shore. A lot of his road trip pictures from the '70s. I mean, you know, Portsmouth is a town that really kind of feels stuck in the in the 70s at, at the most recent, at least in your pictures. And and so there's kind of a time period lineup there. But in, in, in Shore's road trip pictures, there's usually, you know, a little hint of romance or beauty or uh, lingering humanity presence in a way that, that there is not in, in, in these pictures. And I thought maybe that the picture of yours that most clearly kind of deviates from the way Shore found, I don't know, hopefulness, if that's the right word, 
uh, and his, on his road trips through small town urban America is a picture of the side of a building that has, you know, kind of a keystone flagstone type marker. And the marker says 1850, 1927. And then at the top of this little a cement. Cornerstone. Yeah, it's sort of a cornerstone. I mean, it's not really on the corner, but I know it. I mean, yeah. 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 And then at the top of the, the stone, it says rededicated 2000. What is that picture of, and um, and why did it catch your eye? I did a commission for cornerstones for a, my friend that has a lobbyist group in D.C. So I did a, did a lot of the government buildings, the, the Senate and House buildings, and Red Cross, and the building on the mall, and just, you know, the ones I could find that didn't have too much of a, you know, I don't know how to say it. It, it was It was kind of tricky trying to, like, find the stuff that would work as a photograph so and then i just noticed a cornerstone it's like oh you know it's the only thing that i see that has any kind of history in dc besides the uh the manhole cover yeah but it's it's of a church building it's like more like a well, i guess it is a church it's uh the church is actually on page 53 with the big cross on the corner edge and the and the cornerstone is on the right hand side of that which you, around the corner you know, walking back from dinner last a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I noticed the backside of the church actually looks a lot better. <laughs> There's an old neon sign on it. Yeah, it's just old church. It's a, it's a church building, so it's got four stories, and I'm sure they do a lot of lots of social humanitarian things. One of the things I noticed throughout the book is that it's kind of hard to tell what the front and backs of buildings are. You know, are we looking at the front of a building? Are we looking at the back of a building? Is that something you noticed or 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 tried to include or feature no it's just you know as i'm walking through town and you have to understand this is multiple trips so i don't go down the same street over and over again i just take a different way in a different direction so and i come back a certain way of the street that i photographed the year before so there are some things that and you might see that it's the two are the same thing almost. And like near the beginning, the hardware store, they're two different years from two different sides, angles. So Vandervoorts. Yeah. The only way you can tell is that the A sign has an addition on the other one, it has craftsmen. So, and then there, there was one that I was going to do a double of the red brick wall with the back of a black car. Uh, the cross page was going to have the car by itself. And then there's another building with, of, uh, there's a front side and a back side, but there are two different, two different trips. There are two ways in which you, I think really underscore absence of, 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 of people and activity. And I assume there are things that you thought about maintaining the presence of through multiple trips and, 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 and such. One of them is uh, shopping carts. Do you remember consciously seizing on semi-abandoned shopping carts? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a funny story because when we stayed at the first church, that side of town, there were all these shopping carts all over the, all over the town, man. It's like all over the neighborhood. And, you know, like every year, it's like, oh, there's another one here. And, and then one, I think maybe the last year we stayed at the Family Street Church. We were sitting out front, and then there's a little white pickup truck, and he stops. Guy jumps out, grabs a grabs a cart and puts it in the back of the truck, and takes it back to Kroger's. So people just take their groceries in the cart home, and they leave the carts on the side of the street, and some guy comes and picks them up. And <laughs> so it's 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 less a story of absence and emptiness than a certain small town collegiality. Yeah, yeah, and this is and this is, well, I mean, this is before I started photographing for real, so. But yeah, you know, and but you know, years later, it still happens. You know, you still see a random a random shopping cart, and that's something you always see. I mean, you you'll see it, and I've seen it up and down the East Coast that people take a shopping cart because they need to move stuff. You know, they have a couple at the dorm at at Howard University. You see these kids, you know, they moving into the dorm and they're taking a shopping cart from their car or their parents' car into the dorm. It's like, that's all, that's all they have to move their stuff, you know, because they're going to be there for a few months. So, yeah, it's, you know, and it's it's just an element. There's an element of 
items that I look at, shopping carts, phone booths, stop signs, chairs. You know, I have like my list, list of motifs that, you know, if, if I see it and it looks like it needs to be captured, then I'll use it. Another element that pops up a lot is, is empty parking lots. And what's interesting about the parking lots is, you know, they wouldn't be there if businesses and churches and whatever didn't expect them to be used to capacity. Parking lots are expensive to build, both in terms of land and, and pavement and maintenance. And you've got lots of big, empty parking lots. Was that also something that you, you seized upon? There's so many. And I'm, you can just walk from one side of town to the other and almost not hit a sidewalk because there's just so many parking lots that are just empty. And, and you have to remember, this is, this is a Saturday afternoon, and it's Mother's Day weekend. I don't know what's going on where there's nobody around. I mean, I'm, okay, half of downtown is torn down, but there's still some places where people go. And then you got like two, you know, 200, or not 200, but 1,500 to 2,000 cyclists in town, but they're not staying downtown. They're staying at the high school or they're staying at another school on the other, on the other side of town. So really the only people you see walking around are cyclists walking to dinner and back. So, you know, it's, it's, that's the other thing that made me wonder, you know, where is everybody? You know, why has this become my, such, such a good subject matter for me? Because it was almost too good to be true. I don't take pictures of people. I don't have people in my images. You know, sometimes figures can create a narrative, and I'm not trying to make a narrative. So, and I think when I first realized how empty it was, it reminded me of Detroit the one time I was there downtown in the late 90s. I was there for work, and they put me up in the hotel downtown. It's like, well, there's nobody here. And I walked around for two days photographing a ghost town. And it, it, it reminded me of that. It's like, okay, this is this is that this is almost that empty. Yeah, the parking lot definitely definitely convey that. Ken Ashton, thanks so much. No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.